The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You could have recorded all that great conversation that you and father had together when you guys were being really chummy earlier. No, some things, some <laughs> things that I, need to be, not that I noticed. Need to be human, you know? <laughs> I, I'm not jealous at all. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> never in my life. Patrick's been jealous of me plenty of times publicly, but I never get to talk about how often I get to be jealous of Patrick. Welcome to the Crunch, the only podcast that I'll leave the light on for you. It's your boy Ethan, and I'm Patrick. And oh my gosh, I'm so excited for our guest today. I have to introduce. I have to introduce him, and it, I, it gives me gr- it gives me great honor. I'm a great. I'm greatly honored to be able to introduce my longtime friend, Father Blake Britton. I known him. I've known him since he was in my phone as Seminarian Blake Britton because I thought that was so <laughs> cool that I was friends with the seminarian. Um, our our guest today is the author of the book Reclaiming Vatican II. Uh, it was published with, as a joint project with Word on Fire and Ave Maria Press. And he also happens to be a friend of mine from when I was in high school and he was in seminary. Hi, Father Blake. How are you? Yes, which is my true claim to fame, to be Patrick's friend. Do you know? That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's on the podcast. Yes, exactly. No, no. I'm doing really well, brother. We were reminiscing before the um, before the recording session of just mm-hmm. amazing how Providence works, that all these years yeah. later, we would reconnect this way. Um, and I'm just, I'm very excited to be here with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation as well with you, Ethan. So don't worry. It's not just going to be a Patrick and I show. I promise no, we're okay. not going to sit here and be chummy and catch up the whole time. Uh, so. <laughs> that's good i'm i'm just i'm hiding my insecurities through humor which no one's ever done that before right that i mean that's always the healthiest way to do deflect deflect De- deflect and, and deny deflect project and reject is what i say the, the old the old trinity exactly um, the, the we do have a connection though i do live on britain road so we're basically we're pretty close I'm pretty I. sure my family owns that road. I'm, you're, you're, you're part of you're I'm part of the family. I didn't know that. Didn't know well, you I'm glad that you you went with your part of the family instead of you're squatting on my family's land, which would have been a much more you, awkward. This is your eviction notice. You have 30 days. Yes. You, or you need to give us a percentage of your crops. Yeah, That's what yes. What a, what oh, a we're terrible, feudal, terrible world to live in where you get a feudal way of doing this. Yes. Yeah. You, you need to yeah. hill crop the land and give it to me in due time. For the majesty. real trads, the real trads organize feudal societies. That's what the real trads do. Um, Don't talk to me unless you have a fief. That's that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> a fiefdom. So right right before we started, I wanted to capture this so that yeah, tell people the story. Tell the story about the thing. Because uh, Father Father Blake, I, I was reading I was reading this book, and you mentioned you mentioned a conversation that you had with Monsignor Page, who is a, a former pastor at a church in my hometown. So Father Blake, for those of you who don't know, which is most people. Um, Father Blake was assigned as a seminarian to uh, the church near my home parish when I was in high school, and he hung out with um, a bunch of us and told us about like theology and things. And he that those conversations that we had that summer is why I decided to study theology. Mm-hmm. It's why I decided to go to Franciscan. It's pretty huge. It's why I read Ratzinger, all that stuff. 
Sorry to and so this is a pretty important summer for me, but apparently it was a very important summer for Father Blake as well. So please tell the story. I really want to hear this. Yeah, I mean, there were graces all throughout that summer. The the connection with the young adults and youth groups, of course, of Ascension and Holy Name of Jesus, that whole Melbourne area. It's just, it's a very great Catholic area. <laughs> you know, Jeez. a lot of great Catholic young adults and youth. And, and it was a grace-filled summer for me. I got to meet Monsignor David Page, um, an old Irish Monsignor. I feel like all of us have at least one of those in our lives. And, uh, <laughs> and he is a great one to have. <laughs> and he took me out to lunch as a newly assigned seminarian to the parish and, and just wanted to, you know, catch up with me, be kind. And throughout the conversation, he just mentions in passing, like, it's no big deal whatsoever. He's like, yeah, you know, and then when I was newly ordained, I went to Vatican II. And then, you know, after a couple of years came back here and then I was assigned to work on the beach. For, and I was like, did you just say that you were assigned, like that you went to Vatican too? <laughs> Wait a second, <laughs> that you just mentioned that you were at an ecumenical council of the Universal Church, uh, and so, needless to say, he began to regale me with stories about Vatican II for the next oh several hours, and I was absolutely on the edge of my seat. And this began my own personal endeavor to better comprehend the teachings of the council. So I started reading the documents of Vatican II. However, throughout that process, a novel idea. Yeah, I know, right? Yes. It, it. <laughs> nowadays is a very rare novel idea. <laughs> but uh but all that being said, all joking aside, I you know, I started reading through these documents and I recognized a disconnect within mm-hmm. my first couple years of study between what was being mentioned in the documents and what was being done on the grassroots level at local parishes and communities. And that reoriented my research started going in a different direction, which is mainly what happened what happened, which is one of the subtitles of my book. Uh, How did we get from the ideal of Vatican II to what most people have nowadays? And that was the real question I I sought to answer. And and that became the foundations of the book. Sorry, I came with that joke too early. I said two words, Edward Skillebex. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Sorry, Ah. I believe you out of that joke. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. Um, no, I'm like I'm I'm having that's awesome. I, and I I'm I, it's really interesting that you came came to that conclusion because I'm having the same kind of crisis myself with reading mm. these documents in my graduate study because it's like I went to a very Catholic school and of course since we have nothing better to talk about we're going to talk about Vatican II and like you know the real interpretation and what they really meant and I had friends I, I I didn't have any friends who were like you know what the Vatican Council really meant was they wanted us to to you know have folk masses that wasn't what they were saying. Right. My my friends were were very much like no the the either on the side of the Second Vatican Council was saying it was basically worthless or the Second Vatican Council was saying uh, we should you know keep the Latin Mass and actually Sacrosanctum Concilium actually said you shouldn't have guitars and mass etc. Right. Um, and it wasn't really until like I started reading the documents. And especially like reading, reading your book, it kind of came clear, became more clear that like the second Vatican council was not a random collection of theological innovations. It was a, a systematic approach to, you know, moving tradition forward and moving the church forward. And like, I love the little schematic that you put at the beginning of the book. Um, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, most certainly. And, and you just hit the nail on the head. This is something uh, that is often lost in the conversations revolving around Vatican II, namely that it isn't, didn't just fall out of thin air. You know, um, It just didn't appear, and it's not a new agey concept as if there was a bunch of bishops who wanted to start year zero in the Catholic Church and say everything mm-hmm. before Vatican II is bad. 
On the contrary, Vatican II was nearly a two-century development in Catholicism that reached its pinnacle within the ecumenical council itself. But before that, we have a movement called Ressourcement that is starting to take place within Catholicism, again, in the two centuries preceding the council. Just very basically, that's a French word. That means to go back to the sources. Uh, What was happening is that a new field of scientific study was birthed, namely archaeology. And archaeology was starting to lead to all sorts of amazing discoveries, uh, both in the archaeological sector of geography, but also in the archaeological sector of biblicism, of documentations, of discovering ancient societies and civilizations and their cultures. Part of that was Catholic society and culture, most importantly, the apostolic and patristic age. So tens of thousands of pages of documentation that was really forgotten within the memory of the church is all of a sudden thrust into the fore and picked up by people like Johann Anna Moller, who becomes the founder of the Tubingen School of Theology, of which our beloved Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI is an alumni. And that's then later oriented towards uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman, who will bring and integrate patristics into ecclesiology. And then finally, we have Father Matthias Sheban, who becomes the great theologian of the Blessed Virgin Mary, building upon those patristic resources and integrating it with Newman's ecclesiology. All those together ultimately are blossomed within the Second Vatican Council's document on the church, which we call Lumen Gentium. So again, that represents a very uh, complex, uh, intricate, and much thought through theology of the church. And that's why Lumen Gentium is, in my opinion, the most beautiful of the four major documents. Now, you mentioned the schematic at the uh, the first several chapters of my book, and, and there I, I articulate what I believe is the basic logic of Vatican II, but also the logic of Christianity itself. We have, at the beginning of the Council, a focus on the sacred liturgy. That's the document Sacrosanctum Concilium. The liturgy, as the Council says very clearly, is the source and summit of the life of the Church. And not only that, it is the primary responsibility of the Church. If we don't do the liturgy right, go home. Game over. Right? (laughs) We shouldn't be here. The whole purpose of Catholicism, in the end, is to offer right worship, to the Father, through the Son, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, which we call the sacramental life of the Church. Vatican II emphasizes that over and over again, and there was much need for reform, which I'm sure we could talk about in a few moments, in regards to the sacred liturgy. There are a lot of reasons why we had that reform, already starting with St. John the Twenty-Third and his reform of the Missal of Pius V, which becomes the Missal of John the Twenty-Third, what we now call the Extraordinary Form. So that took place before Vatican II, but also the introduction of the Missal of Paul VI, which is commonly called the Novus Ordo. Now, out of the liturgical life of the Church, we have the birth of the Church herself, From the pure side of Jesus, as the church fathers will say, flows out blood and water, baptism and Eucharist, which is then deposited into the heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And in that moment, when Our Lady's at the foot of the cross, Catholicism is birthed into the world, and then eventually Pentecost takes place, which is when the graces of the Immaculate Heart of Mary are dispensed now throughout the rest of the body. But out of this liturgical centra comes the church. She understands herself by every day contemplating the face of Christ through his mystical sacrifice. And that's aided by the deposit of faith, sacred tradition, and sacred scripture, which is the next document, Dei Verbum. And as we contemplate sacred tradition and sacred scripture, then we're able to go out and to evangelize and convert the world, which is the final document, Gaudium et Spes. One of the things that we get in trouble with, and this is why I go through the efforts of having that schematic within my book, we often confuse or put the cart before the horse in regards to the logic of Christian life. So we try to go be evangelist, 
but we don't understand the liturgy. Or we try to go and teach, but we haven't read the church fathers. We haven't studied sacred scripture. Uh, We try to guide the church, but we're not rooted in her tradition. So we really need to form ourselves according to the mindset of the council, which in the end, of course, is the mindset of Christianity itself in order to properly implement the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially in the third millennium. Interesting. I, I'm, I'm curious to, be, just because I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, I don't want to hit, I don't want to go too intellectual too quick. Yeah. Um, or too, uh, or too up there. So I'm, I'm just curious because I know we just started talking about academics and then I, I looked over at Ethan and I was like, oh no, um, Ethan, uh, I have a question for you specifically. And this is just more for, for my, my personal benefits. Like, cause I don't really know this about you. I'm ready to answer the question. What is based, like basically you went to a college that was not talking about Vatican II all the time. I can no. assume. No. What was your perception of the council and did it did it match up with like Father Blake's schematic? I'm sure it was one to one. Everyone was talking about how the liturgy flows into mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the positive faith. Yeah, everyone yeah, was talking about Yeah. That. I actually I actually did know um nothing is what I knew. Okay. And so <laughs> um so the my understanding of Vatican II was basically what I gleaned from passing comments on the Catholicism subreddit and Catholic Twitter. Uh, and then as I learned more and more, like kind of reading Jason Everett's book on John Paul II and uh, getting a little glimpse into Paul VI and um, Evangelion Nunciandi and like those little glimpses that I kind of got of like the culture and the time and what was happening. And the more I learned about history, I kind of started to put some pieces together, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't really understand it until probably I read um, Witness to Hope last year. And that was my third year as a focus missionary because honestly, it's it's not that big of a deal to most people, <laughs> and so I hadn't spent right. a lot of time uh, investing in you know got on shade Vatican II because people were asking me questions at K State and then at Tulsa where I was a focus missionary, like why should I even pray? You know, like we we didn't get so deep in in terms of what happened to, to Vatican II in the '60s and and all these things. So I would say that my basic understanding was that it happened and things changed because of it. And it's an ecumenical council, so I have to respect it. And JP2 liked it, so I'm going to like it. But that's pretty much the only thing as far as I got until, you know, about a year or two ago. And and I would say that you're further along than most Catholics in that regards. (laughs) Yeah. Because what I found is you're absolutely correct. And I mentioned this in the introduction of my book. The majority of Catholics are left on the sidelines. So you have Mm -hmm. the paraconciliar, which I'm sure we could talk about in a few moments. This uh, what may typically be called the liberal, but although I dislike that term, the liberal Catholics are very enthusiastic about Vatican II. And then you have the more, quote unquote, conservative traditionalist branch that's very adamant against it. Uh, and then the rest of us in the middle who are sort of like, huh, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what is this? Vatican II what? You know, yeah. uh, and, and my book in a special way is oriented towards those persons. Um, mm. to the, the millions and millions of Catholics who have been left on the sidelines in this conversation because of these warring factions, because of these these extremities that have been formed within the church. And I, I think it's going to be that population before any other, which really does begin the reacclimation of Vatican II, uh, because mm. we're approaching it in an ungilded way w- without an ax to grind. You know, we're just going to say, oh, wait, I, you know, I just grew up going to mass thinking this is what we did. But wait, there's more. There's something better. Yeah. You know, because that's what I found out. I mean, I was raised going to mass in a garage with Puerto Rican immigrants. I'm of Hispanic background. So, I mean, I wasn't going to the extraordinary forum growing up. You know, I was with I was with Mm -hmm. migrants. I was in a very humble abode and there was a beautiful and simple faith there. But at the same time, as I started to learn more about the church, I was like, whoa, wait a second. 
my initial experience of the church was actually quite beautiful and profound in its simplicity, but there's more. <laughs> there's yeah. something even more grand than that. Okay, sure. I'll learn about it. What is this Vatican II thing? And that's what got me started in my own study. So I, I think that your experience, Ethan, is, is where most of us started. And I think that's actually a good place to begin because we're unfettered by these extremes that are sort of warring with each other, you know? I'm big on not being yeah. fettered. That's my, yeah. that's my <laughs> exactly. calling. Card. They call him Ethan Unfettered Steve. Unfettered Steve. Yes. That Go was ahead, similar Pat. to that was that was some that was similar to my experience where it was like it it was this is this is how I just go to church and it looks very normal and then I learn more and more. I remember like like Father like you were the one who told me about what a scapular is and like I remember yes, like yeah. learning more about that and I was like this is so cool you have to be like invested that's cool and and so my my time my time in in, in youth ministry in high school and then later in college was this kind of like learning about what learning about the tradition of our church and like. I, I, it's hard because I know that a lot of people in that, in that journey, they meet in their hero's journey of their faith life, right? They, the, the, the wise sage they meet is like, no, no, come over here. I'm going to show you how real Catholics go, right. go down. And right. they get kind of pulled into like the, these more, these more extremist groups. Now I shouldn't say extremist because that has a connotation nowadays, but yeah. Don't worry. Yeah, about I think it. Yeah, we're in a we, safe we, place. We post edit. Post edit. Can we? Can we beep that out? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> it might sound worse if you beep it out. I know, right? but um, but yeah, that that that's that's a lot of people's experience, and I'm I'm glad to hear that this book is is can be that that buffer for people who might um who might end up meeting that person. Ethan is using the the hand raising function on that. <laughs> I love it like when this? we use Zencaster because it hops up and down. It says, "Hey." I don't need to I want to talk. I want to Patrick, go stop talking. Yeah, okay, that Ethan, that reminds you... me of like Donkey from Shrek. It's like, does yes. anybody want to go? Choose me. Choose me. me. Ooh, ooh. Anybody <laughs> else? Anyone. Anyone. So Ethan's like, please yes, let me talk. Please, let me let talk. Me. I, well, I just have a question. So yeah. uh, another thing, speaking of what people know about Vatican II, I think another yeah. line that people have heard is the, is the we're going to open up the windows of the church to the right. world, right? This is a very famous... Uh, I think it was John the 23rd. Correct me it if was. I'm wrong. Yeah. John okay. The 23rd. Yeah. So he said, we're, we're, we're blasting these guys open and everyone's going to, we're going to let the light out and we're going to let people see in. It's going to be really cool. And I think that's a very noble dream, right? I mean, he's a mm -hmm. saint. He's, he's a beautiful man and beautiful big boy. And we <laughs> love him. Gentleman. And, and so it, it seems as if the, the council was convened with this idea that all right, we we are kind of we're we're reeling a little bit from the craziness of the 20th century, right? Christendom as we know it kind of got destroyed after World War One, and then double destroyed after World War Two, yeah. <laughs> and we're kind of in the middle of this weird Cold War phase where everyone's kind of on the hair trigger because we now have this atomic bomb thing, and communication is changing, entertainment, everything is wild, right? I mean, this is what we all know about the 60s and the 50s and all that time period. So it seems like the intention was, all right, let's let's help people understand that the church is not a pre-World War One thing. It's not a pre-20th century thing. It is a it still exists and it's still real and it's still happening. And and if you follow the formula that you laid out earlier, where it's liturgy and the sacramental life, and that leads to tradition and sacred scripture, which will lead us to, you know, uh, evangelization ultimately. If we follow that, then great, everything works out. But for whatever reason, the actual implementation, although it started with such a good idea of let's 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 bring this to people, just seemed to I mean the, the problem that you outlined is that people went straight to Gaudium et Spes and just would spread it without starting where they needed to start, which right. is the beauty of the liturgy. But it right. seems as if I I mean everybody kind of had this idea that we need to go and spread it and 
just like the execution just fell short. Like, I don't understand how everyone had this clear vision and John the 23rd had this clear vision. And then for whatever reason, we just kind of, and then it just kind of fell down. So I I would hope if you could speak to that a little bit, just the cultural moment and then the the actual execution following from that. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of the crunch. Sorry to interrupt what I'm sure is a stimulating intellectual conversation, but I wanted to pause the episode real quick to let you hear from some of our sponsors. We will be back right after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Yeah, just to elaborate on your initial point about opening up the windows, which uh, was summarized in a single word by St. John the 23rd, aggiornamento, which is an Italian word for renewal or freshness. Uh, it's very common in Italy, by the way, to open up the windows of your house, especially during the spring months, to let fresh air in. So he was using that analogy from his own culture. And the purpose of that was was not so much to to allow the church to become worldly, but rather to let the light of the church shine out. You're absolutely correct that after the uh, Second World War, the world was in shambles, uh, culturally, spiritually, uh, psychologically. It's just a very traumatic, horrific evil that had just ravaged the world. And the church needed to share two things. And that's the title of the document in Latin, Gaudium et Spes, Joy and Hope. Joy and hope, and that's the joy and hope of Christ. So this is what mm-hmm. the church has to share. Now, you mentioned how did this machine break down? You know, what were the cogs that sort of got stuck along the way? Well, this took place relatively quickly, within a ten-year window after the council. Uh, that's recognized by one of the great French Jesuits of the 20th century, Henri de Lubac, and he writes a, a wonderful little Goat. essay called "The Council and the Paracouncil." And in there, he elaborates how already within that decade time frame from the closing session of Vatican II, you had a number of theologians who were disappointed with the council because they did not think it was radical enough. Uh, they thought it was far too conservative in their mind and that it didn't uh, go as far as they wished it would have. So what they started doing was using the auspices, sort of masquerading as, Vat- as theologians of Vatican II, uh, while going around and promoting their own personal ideologies. And now you have a bunch of different theologians saying a bunch of different things about Vatican II, and they're teaching this in universities, they're teaching this in seminaries, at parishes, and within a 10 to 15 year time frame, you're already starting to get a disambiguation very quickly of the documents of the text. Why? Because the majority of lay people weren't trained to read documents firsthand. That's a very recent notion in the life of mm-hmm. the church. We were trained just to trust what the clergy were telling us, <laughs> you know? So yeah. if your local parish priest came to you and said, well, Vatican II, the Pope wants this to happen in the Mass, you're like, oh, okay, a little strange that it would happen in less than 24 hours, but all right, let's do it, you know? The priest <laughs> says so, so I trust the priest. Um, and then they started enacting all of these reforms that were not uh, envisioned by the council itself. And, and over time, what had happened, I really think Ethan and Patrick is, that was the initial sort of blow, if you will, to the implementation of Vatican II, but then as we got further and further from the event and further and further from the text themselves and people became less understanding of the initial vigor of the council, just ultimately disinterest boiled over and these personal ideologies won the day and became the standard. 
And that's what we call the spirit, quote unquote, of Vatican II. So when we hear someone come and say, well, this is in the spirit of Vatican II, as one bishop told me in our country, uh, he came and did a retreat at the seminary. He said, um, he said, if someone comes up to you and tells you that they're doing something in the spirit of Vatican II, they're probably not. <laughs> they're probably not. Right? Uh, that became a catchphrase to really mean, well, I, I would like this to be done, or I think this mm-hmm. is what the church wants, or I think this is what Vatican II wants, as opposed to what the council actually taught. It's kind of like that uh, Ronald Reagan... Mm. Uh, the 16 most feared words is I'm from the church and this is in the spirit of Vatican too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I'm, and I'm here to help, right? <laughs> pretty sure. Pretty sure Ronald Reagan said that. I think he's devout <laughs> Catholic Ronald Reagan. I'd be, um, I'd be, it'd be 13 words. Yeah. I don't, I didn't count them before I, I made the joke. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you did great. But yeah, no, that, that's like everybody's favorite Halloween costume, the spirit of Vatican two. If you haven't seen that, just Google image, uh, spirit of Vatican two costume. It's very funny. Um, but yeah, like that, there, there was a lot of that in, I mean, I felt like in my childhood growing up, like we were kind of coming out of that. Um, right. There was like, I remember Life Teen for years encouraged people to like gather around the altar during the consecration. And like, right. um, I mean, my own parish right now is, is, uh, is I, I, I went down to the, to the basement to get some, uh, to get a music stand from the old uh, folk mass group. And there was literally like a peace love sticker on the music stand. And I was like, this is great. This is, this is perfect. 1970s, like Catholicism. I love it. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was like all these little things that like in and of themselves. And it, it sounds funny because if you, if you get upset about it, it sounds like you're making a mountain out of a molehill, but it's like these little, these little movements, they, they did something. And they, I think they, yeah. they damaged a little bit of like my understanding of what Catholicism was growing up. Yeah. It made it harder for me to kind of come to understand what it was later. Absolutely. And, and I think part of that is patience. You know, uh, an ecumenical council is a pretty big deal. There's only been like 20 of those in 2000 yeah. years and it takes time to implement them properly. So we see, for example, um, after the council of Ephesus, that St. Vincent of Iran, who's one of the church fathers, uh, he would write a document trying to implement properly the teachings of the council of Ephesus. So he was like, Hey guys, there are people after this council who are misinterpreting it, who are saying X, Y, or Z, but this is not really what the council's saying. I'm like, wow, this sounds eerily familiar. <laughs> you know. Uh, so this oh, would yeah. not be the, yeah. be the first time. Yeah. I, I, I'm in church history right now on the, on the graduate level. And I can't believe it wasn't an undergrad class because, oh my gosh, I, I'm like, yeah, it was so much. I mean, I think it was after we, I mentioned the council of Chalcedon as a joke before we started recording, I think. But like I heard that I think it was after the Council of Chalcedon that like when Nestorius heard about the council, he felt vindicated. Right. You know, it's like there's right. so many different in the when I when I heard of the uh, the first seven ecumenical councils when I was in in college, I was like, oh, yes, it was like very everyone was like, yes, we believe this about Jesus and the heretics are the bad guys and the church, is the good guy. And every time the church gets it real right. But there was some like ambiguities. Yes. And, like, people were. It- yeah. And that's part of the church being alive, being a mystical mm-hmm. body. She's organic. And that's why one of the other things I address in the book I think so important is patience, love, and understanding with one another. Mm-hmm. You're right about the 60s, 70s Catholics. There's some hippy-dippy things going on that were crazy. But you know yeah. what? <laughs> they were in the church. And, and they're trying to love. And although there mm-hmm. might be misinformation or there may be misappropriation, in the end, there's sincerity there. Now, I'm not condoning any of the liturgical abuses. I'm not condoning any of the misimplementations. We do need to correct ourselves. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it has to be done with this spirit of like, okay, I, 
I really, I understand my Christian brothers and sisters and recognizing the goodness in their hearts. I would say the same thing, by the way, with traditionalists. So we're always talking about being pastoral and I'm all for being pastoral. I'm a pastor of souls after all. And we have to have pastoralism also towards traditionalists. Uh, yeah. Some of the yeah. points they bring up are very legitimate points, and we can't just dismiss them saying, oh, well, this is a closed-minded, rigid group of people who da-da-da. That's not pastoral at all. It's, it's to listen, as Pope Francis says all the time, to have a spirit of dialogue and openness and humility. So we need to recognize that, yeah, some person that are in the traditionalist camp may be hypercritical of Vatican II or what have you, but why? Why? I'm not really concerned about what they're saying with Vatican II, because most of the things they say are false claims or misinformed, or they're the effects of misimplementation of the documents. I'm more concerned with what happened to them. What's the wound in their heart that led yeah. them to have this kind of vitriol or be so so upset and so hurt? And that's that's legitimate. That needs to be nurtured to, as well as from the other side, what experiences did they have in their notion of church, either in the pre-conciliar church and the post-conciliar church, that led them to misappropriate or to misimplement the council in such a way? I believe recognizing those those sincere longings of the human heart will be a huge path of reconciliation forward and also will free mm. us from approaching the topic in this mindset of like you're either liberal Catholic or conservative Catholic. I'm like, how about we just be Catholic? That sounds like really, really good to me. You know, Huge. let's not be in these political categorizations, which are totally Huge. unfit for the church. Uh, we, yeah. we need to move forward just as brothers and sisters. And there's a lot of grace to be had here if we go back to the documents themselves firsthand. I think there is a there's something to be said um, about there is a desire from those who are in the traditionalist camp to um, to if we just if we just fix the liturgy and fix the aesthetics then people will come to know the Lord, right? And like the liturgy will save the world and all these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at these mediocre Novus Ordo parishes, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of half in half out and like, it's super lukewarm and we don't care or you guys don't care. So you have to, you have to go swing all the way to one side, right? Which is mm -hmm. interesting because I mean, we we're talking about those, the theologians that kind of swerved us in the other way. It feels like a lot of that was, well, you know, we're going to have, some different aesthetics and like people are going to see them. They're going to see the folk mass and they're going to see the felt banners and they're going to feel welcome and they're going to feel at home and the liturgy will save the world. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> right. What, what, what just happened here? Right. So it's, it's both swinging to one side or the other loses sight of the, of the issue, which is that in America, especially we, and I think this is what the documents point to and what we've been kind of circling around is that we don't trust in the ability of, of, making everything about Jesus and trusting Jesus with everything is actually going to be the way that we have life as a church and the way that we bring life to everyone else, right? Yes. This, we take the documents or Vatican II is a, is a, is a, a key example of this, how we just take something like this and say, well, how can we programmatize this thing? How can, right. we, how can we mechanize this yeah. thing so that I can take it and I can throw out my pipe organ and then, and then more people will know Jesus or I can take it and I can and reject it and say, okay, well, we're only going to do mass in Latin and, and this is, this is the right way. It's like, no, we're, we're missing the complete point of everything, which is that Jesus desires a, a relationship with us. And that relationship needs to be fostered through daily prayer and the sacraments and corporal works of mercy and spiritual works of mercy. And if we don't do that, then the church is going to shrink and die and no one's going to be interested in Catholicism because anything that we offer them, whether it's beautiful or not beautiful means nothing if it's without right. the Lord. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you're, you're hitting on something so important, which is the centrality of, of encountering Christ. 
uh, th- this is absolutely key. Now, that happens only through the liturgy, primarily through the liturgy, um, in the sense of properly speaking. Of course, people can have encounters with the Lord in other ways, but primarily and most perfectly that happens in the context of the liturgy. But as you said, and, and this is something very important, we cannot pretend like all the problems in Catholicism are going to be solved by just pretending Vatican II never happened. And, and mm. that's a very false narrative. And we also cannot pretend that Catholicism is going to be perfectly implemented and pure if we just reject anything that happened before the year 1962. <laughs> uh, neither of those responses are correct. We have to understand the church in development. And part of that is thinking through these realities and, and again, being patient with them as we think through them. So we've gone through what is typically called an odd experimentum period or an experimental period after the council. And we saw a bunch of stuff that didn't work, right? So we're like, okay, yeah, that was a bad idea. That was a bad idea. <laughs> that took away the dignity of the Eucharist, blah, blah. But we also saw a lot of things that did work, like World Youth Day. That, is, that kind of event is not possible without the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. The notion of having a Eucharistic liturgy where over a million young people are present and you have tens of thousands of con-celebrating priests and religious and all those sort of things come out of the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. So there's some amazing, magnificent, magnificent things that Vatican II did as well that we need mm-hmm. to also appreciate and recognize. And, and that's what I, again, what I find people lacking and they're not able to distinguish um, the good from the bad. So as Jesus says, to separate the wheat from the weeds, but also they have this tendency, which is typical, as you mentioned, uh, Ethan, in American politics, uh, to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So if if I don't agree with one of your ideologies, then you're just a bad person, obviously. So I just get rid of everything <laughs> that is ever associated <laughs> with you. Well, it's possible that I may say something wrong, but also something good. It's possible that yeah. that a person can be right somewhere and wrong somewhere, and that doesn't mean that they're a horrible person or their entire infrastructure is evil. Hmm. Um, and so we have to have that Thomistic uh, subtlety, I think, to distinguish the true, the good, and the beautiful in, in different people and also in different ways that the church develops in history. I think that's something we try to do on this podcast. We talk about some pretty controversial topics, but we never, we try to always like give it a fair shake and be like, well, this right. is true, but this is wrong, you know? Like, right. And, and yeah. all that's, all that in the end is because Jesus Christ is alive. So why are we freaking out? <laughs> I, I, I have trouble understanding that myself. Like, okay, so we're acting like this has to be absolutely figured out right now. Mm-hmm. We're acting as if as if the Lord is not alive and he's not working from within the church. When St. Paul is very clear in his theology that he makes up in his body what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ— this is where we get our theology of redemptive suffering. Mm-hmm. The church, again, is a living body. She's dynamic. And part of growing up is having growing pains. And that's yeah. going to happen every once in a while. It doesn't mean Catholicism is going to be destroyed. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It doesn't mean that we're going to have this complete collapse of our religion or traditions. The Lord will sustain those things. All mm-hmm. that we have to do is be docile to the Spirit, to ask for wisdom and discernment, to, to see what's true and what's not true to have the courage to implement and hold up the truth and to take a deep breath and remember that the Lord is alive. You know? yes. And if we Pride. do that, I think we could have a lot more productive dialogues than we do now. You know, definitely. I totally Pride. agree. Oh, go ahead, Pat. Sorry. Sorry. Pride, Pride manifests itself in many different ways, as we yes. all know. And like one of, I mean, but the, the main, the main thrust of the sin is like, I pretending, imagining as if you are God and God is not. And I think that's, I think that's part of it is like, I have to figure this out because God's not going to. Yeah, because uh, he can't and I can. 
Um, right. And so like being frustrated or like maybe, maybe it's, it's maybe not, it's not, maybe it's not so granular. It's like, oh, the church is going to figure this out because for whatever reason, I don't believe that God's going to. And yeah, that's like, that's there, there's a pride in that as well. That it's like, it's the church's responsibility to like hammer out, you know, to, to, to fix things on its own without the grace of the Holy spirit. I mean, I talk to people all the time about like, I talk to a specific group of people all the time about like politics and like how to run that, what like running the country looks like. And they're always like, Oh, the politicians need to do this and do this. And it's like, honestly, like they, they, they need grace. You know, that's what they mm-hmm. need. It sounds so like simple, but it's, I mean, we forget how, how much you need grace to like raise a family, let alone like lead a nation or implement yes. a council. You know, it just, right. the grace is so important and it, it's so easy to forget that. I just sent a text to Patrick uh, the other day that just said, Everybody's concerned about whether or not Joe Biden is is pro abortion and he's taking communion and all these things. No one's asking Joe Biden if he prays. No one's no one's asking him if he's been to confession. Like no one seems to care about his soul. They just seem to care about the 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 little bucket that we could put him in. And I think back to what you were saying earlier, Pat, about we have to we um we act out the role of God in our own lives. Like we just make ourselves the true arbiter. And I think, and you were talking about this too, Father, that the church institutionally i think has a hard time recognizing that you know we're all all this division and the traditionalists and pope francis in, issuing these moto proprios and the, the bishops are like well there's so much division all these things like we don't really understand how many catholics don't actually believe in jesus christ like right. there is a a serious lack of commitment to him as the lord and the savior there's a there's a really great commitment to the Catholic Church in a in a social civic sense, oh, which is boy, yeah, there is which my is great. Love <laughs> oh yeah, love the church. I love being civically obligated to my local community. I think that's good. But it's a very good thing. It's a very good thing. We're very pro that Knights of Columbus. Woo. Um, but <laughs> but the problem is is that we we speak as if I mean, a lot of priests do this, and I don't want to just dump on priests. But nowadays, it's kind of this well. We assume that if you're here and if your butt's in the seat, then you believe in in Jesus, mm-hmm. and and a lot of people don't, and so yeah. it, it's that like that dichotomy. I think I think Vatican II speaks to it very well. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's and, that's the whole point of the exactly. Council. Yeah, right. But we we assume <laughs> everyone has has yeah. internalized that, but a very very small percentage of Catholics have. Yes, and, and we don't we don't talk about that because it's it's scary. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually one of the greatest graces of Vatican II is not only does it make us conscious of the issue that you're speaking about, but it gives us a brilliant way to address the issue, which is before Vatican II we would speak in, of theology in a very uh, scholastic kind of way, which mm-hmm. is not wrong, by the way. I'm a huge, I love scholastics. I love Thomas Aquinas. But it also is not appropriate to our age and time. As you mentioned, yeah. we're in a post-Christian world. So the, the basic foundations of Christendom are gone. If you want to read a great book, it's by Monsignor Shea from the University of Mary. It's from Christendom to the Apostolic Age. Outstanding huge. text. And he, and he speaks on this point. I think he says it very concisely and, and lucidly. But post-Christianity is here. So our mission is not to just try to build upon foundations. Our our mission is to rebuild foundations, period. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And part of that is going to be letting people know, why does Jesus matter? Why, Why does the church matter? What makes faith magnificent and beautiful? Why should you be at mass as opposed to clubbing with your friends? Which one of these is better and why? And what mm-hmm. I will say is that there's a lot of hope in that regards because we're also in a neo-paganism. So 
millennials and Gen Z were mostly unaware of religiosity, to be honest with you. Catholicism is something new again. It's like, whoa, what what do you Catholics do? You know, and that's yeah. cool. I mean, that was the initial draw, actually, in the apostolic and patristic age for those who were being converted by the Gentiles. It, there was this notion of mysticism and mystery behind Catholicism, and that's back again. And there are people aching for it as well. So I agree with you a hundred percent, brother. I think. Our focus needs to be now, and von Balthasar, who's a great uh, theologian, he'll speak about this leading with beauty, uh, and he addresses it perfectly. We have an obligation now to show the beauty, the coherence, and the magnificence of the Catholic tradition, Mm. which is, bar none, the greatest tradition on the planet. When people hear the history of Catholicism, when they hear our background, where we've come from, it's not even a competition. We're talking about 2,000 years of unadulterated truth and transference of data, transference of ultimately love of Jesus Christ and the truth Mm -hmm. of the gospel. These things stand the test of time, and that's what our generation is looking for. We're looking for some form of stability because we're always in this uh, flux of stimulation and transaction. And in the end, we can receive that from Catholicism. So for me, it's a very exciting time. We're going to see a shrinkage of the church first. You know, so the church is most certainly going to be smaller, as Pope Benedict prophesied when he came to the United States back in the early 2000s. But part of that is just also going to be a stronger church. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, when something's smaller, you can make it into a more pointed spearhead, and that pierces more deeply. So I think that's going to be part of the Holy Spirit's ultimate ideals as well. But you're right. There's a need for this catechesis of the faithful in the pew to, to not take for granted. Oh, well, they're just catechized and formed. They're not. I'm a parish priest. They're not. I promise. <laughs> I, I see it on a daily basis, you know, and, yeah. and part of my homiletical focus as well. I'm always preaching about the coherence, the inner logic of the faith to God's people, showing them why this matters mm-hmm. and how this relates to the entirety of their, of their reality. That's the way that I speak. And it draws them very deeply into prayer. Mm. That's beautiful. We need more yeah. priests like that. I will, perhaps before you say it, I will say one thing. I will push back on that the Catholicism is the most beautiful tradition of all time. Have you heard of Monday Night Football? <laughs> <laughs> so again, yes. I'm a parish priest. Some of my preachers yes. would agree with you. Yes. <laughs> Father, right. Father Blake, Father Blake, I thought Sunday football was bad when I was in Florida. I live in Pittsburgh now. Oh, oh my. my gosh. It's ba-da-bum, an ocean ba-da-bum. of black and gold. It's, it's insane. I mean... <laughs> It's great. Anyway, but they but need Jesus, that, brother. They need yeah. Jesus. The Steelers. <laughs> that, I'm so sorry <laughs> that you're there. Do, <laughs> to that to that point, though, to that point, like it's it's crazy because what you have here is also. I mean, you know, you might know this about uh, the, the Detroit Lions of Judah, Ethan. <laughs> Both, both Detroit and Steelers. What's happening? Where am I? <laughs> what planet I, am I on right now? Detroit true. Lions. Good luck. God bless you. <laughs> You, you might you might remember this about about Ascension and Holy Name that they were they were missionary they were twin missionary parishes established right. like roughly seventy five years ago right so like the people who are the oldest parishioners at the church know remember when it was established but like yeah. the the parishioners at at um some of the parishes in Pittsburgh especially where I used to work up in Newcastle their grandparents built the altar in their church you know like mm. they they have this deep tradition like they have this sense of of belonging right. Yeah. And they also remember when every single one of the 27 parishes in their very small Pittsburgh outskirts town had a Catholic school and two CYO basketball teams and all these things, right? And so they they come to me and they look like, okay, well, why is the church failing now? What's going on? What was different? And I was reading a book and I didn't know how to answer that question. 
I was reading a book called The Two Cities by uh, Dr. Andrew Jones, and I, I highly suggest you pick it up. It's it's like a it's like a history of it's a popular history of Christianity, the church. And um, he mentions in the post-war section of the book how he's like uh, par- the amount of Catholic priests like doubled between 1930 and 1960, but um, so did membership in the Freemasons and the American Legion and bowling leagues. Um, and so his his point was like the the church grew in that time period in America, but not because of evangelization. And I think yeah. that made us get complacent. Yeah. And I think it made it so that we have a lot of people who are in our churches who were they didn't they didn't receive that foundation. And the people who may have been there before that had that foundation are gone. And so, like you said, like this new this new re-evan- this new pagan world that we need to to re-evangelize, it's like the people we we've lost a lot. The 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 we've lost a living sense of the faith. I know I'm ripping yeah. off JP too, but like I, nice. I I see it more now than I did when I was even in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will, I will pose a question to both of you. Cause I think father, you might have some very good insights on this. Um, so if they weren't joining because of evangelization, you know, and like, I mean, I could, I have some guesses as to why priests were the, there was a doubling in attendance at seminaries and priest ordinations in that time period. But like, why, what was happening that made all of these priests that ended up ushering, um, one of the, one of the worst ages of, <laughs> Catholicism in right. the in the history of you know past couple hundred years like why why did they become priests because now I talked to priests probably much like you Father Blake that desire to become priests because they fall in love with Jesus and they fall in love with the sacraments and they want to live their lives as an oblation for the church mm-hmm. but right. it seems to me if, if the numbers were that high there weren't a bunch of oblation minded guys you know right. back I'm just kind of curious what that would have been or what the I didn't meet was. many nominal seminarians in the past decade you know? yes yeah, so, exactly so again I, I want to be I want to be charitable and I want to be prudent most certainly in, but you don't have my to judgment because I can't <laughs> I can't read the hearts of of all the men that were seminary at that time but what I can tell you I'm a vocations director and what I can tell you as vocations director is this uh Men may enter seminary for, for multiple reasons. They feel a legitimate call. Some people are entering to escape. You know, some people are entering because maybe there's confusion there. Uh, they're very zealous for evangelization and, and think that's a call for the priesthood. So part of being a vocation director is helping people discern, is this really a call to the priesthood or is this a thing of Christ that you're becoming concerned with or what have you? So that's part of it. Those are very different reasons why why, when may, why different men may enter the seminary. Also, you have, of course, the traditional aspect. Uh, so like in Irish culture, they have that notion that the firstborn son is always the priest, right? That This is what you did. So there was a lot of culturalism there too. However, I, I don't think any of those things are really the issues when it came to the misimplementation of the 60s and 70s. This is what I think happens, and it's very nuanced, but uh, but it's fair, I believe. On the one hand... You have, of course, seminarians who are formed improperly, again, by this paraconciliar way of thinking. So when they go into their parishes and implement the spirit of Vatican II, they really believe they're doing a good thing. Mm. This is They're not malicious in any totally. way, shape, or form. There's a yeah. sincerity and a goodness in their hearts that they think they're doing what's best for the church. Now, it may not be true. It may be misguided, but it wasn't done maliciously. 
there were some who were malicious about it, absolutely, who, who were trying to upheave any form of tradition, but that was not the majority. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it was the ignorance, the lack of proper formation in the true mind of the council. And Pope Benedict will speak about that in his letter on sexual abuse. He actually references that time period directly when stating that the seminary formation really misled a lot of people uh, when it came to the, the understanding of the Sigmatic Council. Another part of it is, that a man may be very sincere when he enters seminary and becomes a priest, but then he loses sight of Christ. He falls mm-hmm. out of love with Jesus. It's the same thing when we have a marriage, for example. Uh, it always breaks my heart when I hear someone say, I, I fell out of love. That doesn't mean that you should get a divorce. What that means is that somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, you stopped fostering love. You stopped, in the sense, trying to make this love deep and profound. And a lot of our brothers, I think, suffered from that too. At some point, they stopped praying their daily holy hour, praying their bravery. They stopped studying. They stopped uh, entering into contemplation, going on annual retreat in silence with the Lord. And when you don't have that rootedness in Christ, the enemy can very easily manipulate you or misguide you and convince you that your ideas are more important than the teachings of the church. And that's what happened uh, all over the place. I, when you hear priests from the pulpit, within uh, six months of the publication of Humana Vitae, condemning openly St. Paul VI for saying that contraception is against the logic of God. And you have priests from the pulpit saying, well, the Pope is wrong and I'm right. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how do we get that way? What happens to our heart that, that makes us have that kind of milieu or that kind of mindset? Well, we lose sight of Jesus. And as Patrick alluded to earlier, we lose sight of humility. And even if we do personally disagree with the Holy Father, that's not something that you thrust upon the flock of Christ. That's something yeah. that you struggle with in your own contemplation and prayer and spiritual direction. So, Or you could monetize it on YouTube and yeah, sue yeah. your diocese to let you become <laughs> the, the pastor again. Well, not that I'm again, thinking of anyone in particular. I can't say anything to that. Again, I want to for, I want to uh, you know dissuade being judgmental by any means. But what I can say is I've seen I have seen these things. You know, I, I've I've seen them as a vocation director, I've seen them as a seminarian, as a young priest. And um that's really what I think happened, Ethan. It's and it's it's a sad thing, but at the same time, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope because the Holy Spirit is awakening a new generation. I have been beyond impressed with millennials and Gen Z Catholics who have sort of re-encountered their faith and the way that they're just taking it full hog, you know, as we say down here in Florida. Um, they're, they're just really, they're embracing the whole thing and, and trying to truly wrestle it down to the ground and, and to understand it to its fullest depths. And it's very impressive to me as a priest. So you mentioned, you mentioned uh, implementation, and, and this is something that I've been, I've been wanting to ask you for, uh, for the last couple, last couple of minutes. But um, I, in your book, you mentioned briefly your assignment at St. Mary's um, up in Rockledge. And yes. I, uh, I'd been meaning to go, but I always forgotten. And I remember catching on, on your Instagram when, when you left, they, they made a tribute video for you. And I watched the whole thing and I was like, this is very moving. I loved it. Mm. And one of the things they, one of the things the lady mentioned was she was like, father Blake helped us like re, uh, discover like traditional liturgy and like understand like the beauty of sacred art and all these things. And you mentioned in your, in your book, how you practiced implementation Yes. Um, we don't have very many priest uh, listeners. When you go on Clerically Speaking, please make sure you talk about this more. Sure, sure. Um, but <laughs> um, you met Father Harrison, right? You had, you had. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. We, we had a great time together. See, we That's had some, amazing. We had a couple beers down here in Lakeland and cool guy. <laughs> two, 
my 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 two friends that are both the the most you know the biggest ratzinger heads I've ever met. Amazing. Yes, um, I know. And to have us both in the same room, it, it was just it was like, wait, you love Joseph Ratzinger? No, you love Joseph no Ratzinger. Oh, <laughs> the theme from Little Mermaid. I know, but, but either way. <laughs> so, like, what 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 uh, strategies and and like. What things did you focus on when you got to your when you got to that assignment? It was your first assignment as a priest, am I correct? Correct. So yeah. what what did you focus on, like going in? Like what did you do? What was your uh, what was your? I'm going to implement Vatican II, baby. It's going to be yeah. Real Vatican so II time. basically, myself along with the pastor uh, who was an outstanding priest, uh, the two of us go in there and we implement actually the teachings of our first bishop of the United States, John Carroll, uh, who who is an incredible really giant in the history of American Catholicism that few American Catholics know about or appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I and I hope that just me mentioning him in my book in the final chapter will will encourage more people to study about his life because he's a pretty incredible, incredible human being, but also incredible Christian. But when he was first named the Episcopal Ordinary of the entire country, the United States of America, he was handed a really uh, difficult assignment. <laughs> we were the newest country on the face of the earth. We were the first country to ever have a Republican dem- democracy, uh, and now he has to try to uh, govern these people to sanctify them in a majority Protestant nation, which is also a first when it comes to the bishops. So he immediately recognizes there are two needs for American Catholicism to thrive. Number one, the sacred liturgy has to be beautiful, has to be reverent, pious, rooted in the tradition. And number two is Catholic education. And so he works, and then later on, his successors, to establish the most intricate, complicated, and thriving Catholic educational system ever in in world history, which becomes the American Catholic educational system. And that's, of course, has great saints like St. Francis Cabrini and St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Mm -hmm. So uh, John Carroll, he recognized that those were the two things which lead to implementing uh, the teachings of the church Truly. And that's what I did when I was at St. Mary. I focused on, first and foremost, my own heart as a priest being devoutly loving in the liturgy. I celebrated every single Mass, every single confession, every single anointing, a baptism, wedding, funeral, with my whole mind, heart, body, and soul. I treated every liturgy as a high liturgy. This is what we're supposed to do because it, 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 it draws people into to the greater sense of the mystery. Uh, and then also instituting and preaching about reconciliation. I mean, I Father Ivan and I would preach about that over and over and over again. Almost every single homily we mentioned reconciliation in some way, shape, or form. When we got there, there were no confessions. The people hadn't really been going to confession for almost 20 years. And there are multiple reasons for that that we don't need to go into now, but it was just you know from the previous administration. So there was no culture of confession at all. Hmm. It's funny because we showed up a couple of times. We're like, there's no one coming to confession. What happened? Like, is it not on Saturdays? <laughs> so we start preaching by the end of our, our mutual time there with two priests. We would hear confessions over two hours just on Saturdays mm-hmm. with two priests. There was such a long line. We got to the point where we had to start weekly confession times because there were so many confessions every single week coming in. And it was not uh, it was not untypical for me to hear hundreds and hundreds of confessions. So it really is, um, it was a miraculous transformation of the parish on the ground level, but it all happened because we focused on the liturgy. And then secondly, 
education. We wanted the people to understand the teachings of the church. So I started a column in the bulletin called The Splendor of Our Faith, where I wrote on patristics every single week, or I wrote on a different aspect of the catechism. And it went from a little blog to eventually a whole page thing, and the people loved it. I mean, every week they look forward to The Splendor of Our Faith. I'd go through not just like, oh, this is why I make the sign of the cross at Mass. No, I'd say, this is why Basil Cesare wrote on pneumatology, you know, <laughs> like heavy Amazing. stuff. And the I people would just eat it up. We started something called Mission Mondays, uh, which is on various Mondays, either during Advent or, Lent or what have you, either myself or the pastor or other people, we'd give talks on patristics, on Vatican II, on the documents. We do group studies of all these things together. So not just Bible studies, but we do you know studies on the history of the church. We went to the school and I was asked to help uh, sort of reform a part of their education system. And uh, I started teaching classical humanities and philosophy for the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And uh, in that class, we read through Dante. We read classical Greek. We read Homer's Odyssey. We um, so it was just all over. We we started just uh, effusing, if you will, the entire community with the sacred tradition and the sense of, of beauty and education. And it totally mm-hmm. transformed the parish. It went from six hundred people a week into over a thousand people a week in less than two years. And um, and it continued to grow. The school thrived. It really was a wonderful gift. And I don't want to give credit to myself or to the pastor because we know who really did it in the end. It was the Holy Spirit. And we were just being obedient to what he taught in the Second Vatican Council, and it worked. I think this is amazing, first of all. Like, that's, this is so beautiful, and I'm, I'm unsurprised, right? Like I just, you tell me that and it's just like, well, of course that happened, right? Like when you (laughs) authentically preach the Lord and the truths of the church, people will respond. My question to you is that's really great because you have the collar, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you know, these things, you're able to implement them. I am a lay person. I'm not allowed to have ideas in the parish, right? <laughs> and so you should, but well, yes, yeah, right. yes. I mean, in theory, the the priest should listen to all the people who have good ideas. Absolutely, know, uh, absolutely. But that's just not always the reality. And so, for sometimes when we empower the laity, bad things. Sometimes, happen. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of. Um, speaking okay this speaking of which whole, i shouldn't never mind i shouldn't say the parish name at the at the church of the unnamed saint if i recall correctly speaking of empowering maybe people who need to discern a little bit more there was a stray cats ministry oh that dear. was started to help oh, rescue beautiful. stray cats but uh, uh so there's a there's an example maybe putting, not putting parish idea. resources to good use those dwindling <laughs> right. dwindling parish resources um so my question ahead. is you can see where i'm going how do lay people yeah who who love this and love everything that you just said, who desire to do everything that you were just talking about, mm-hmm. but have no leadership position in the church. Like, yes, maybe they can get onto the parish council, but still the buck stops at the pastor. You know, right. like if the pastor's Absolutely. not on board, how can um, parishioners and, and lay people be a part of, of this, of what you're talking yeah. Well, it always starts with yourself. You know, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. In the famous words of Michael Jackson, uh, that's <laughs> that's where it begins, really. And and it starts with you. It starts with you. In other words, if we really want to start the reform of Vatican II with the laity, read the documents and start practicing them in your daily life. And you say, well, how can I practice these in my daily life? Well, Vatican II is very clear that the laity should be praying the Lurge of the Hours every single day. Start with that. Start praying the breviary every single day. Start getting together with your family. Start going to Eucharistic adoration. Study the general instruction on the Roman Missal. Read the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Read the writings of the Church Fathers. Educate yourself. You know, sign up for a Word on Fire Institute course. All these sort of things to to really form and to shape. (laughs) And to shame. And with promo code Blake, you get twenty five percent off today. I mean, what? (laughs) 
<laughs> but uh, but um, there you go. If Bishop Barron's listening, I did it, Bishop. I did, I did it. it. <laughs> but um, but all joking aside, we it starts always with ourself and, and becoming a saint. That's always the response the church has had to any form of crisis. Saints. So Teresa of Avila, she realizes the Carmelites are messed up, and so are a lot of different aspects of the church. What she say? I guess I'm just going to have to become a saint. And she starts growing in holiness, studying the teachings of the church, and her, her heart sets the world on fire. So that's step number one. Step number two would be after you have well-formed yourself, after you've studied, after you've become informed about Vatican II, about the catechism, about the history and tradition of the church, you have a regular prayer life, you're incorporated liturgy of the hours. These are necessary steps to really be active laity in the church. And Vatican II will, will highlight that. After you've laid those spiritual foundations, then we can talk about being involved ministerially or getting involved in the practical level at the parish. Again, mm-hmm. one of the problems is that a lot of people try to get involved in the practical level. Hey, I'm going I'm to lead a Bible study, but I've never read Dei Verbum or any document on what the church says about the Bible. So now the Bible study just becomes a self-enclosed community where we share what we think about the scriptures as opposed to really growing in holiness and love with the church and understanding the the essential wisdom of the church. So that's why I say it's important for personal formation um, before we enter into this more communal activity. But absolutely, once you've gone through the appropriate steps personally, please integrate yourself into the community. Be active, volunteer for ministries, become a leader. That's the kind of laity we want being extraordinary ministers and readers at the mass and and leading our, our CCD programs and our RCIA program. All that stuff is very much needed by a well-formed, informed uh, uh, laity. And if that takes place, you would see revolution in our local parishes, I firmly believe. But again, one of the problems right now is that we have a lot of really good-hearted laypersons who either through their own fault or through no fault of their own, and I think a lot of it is not their fault. It was a failure on me as a clergyman and on a a lot of us as clergy. We just haven't gone through the efforts to really mentor, disciple, and form a lot of the laity. And so they, in a very good-hearted attempt, in a very good-hearted nature, are trying to serve the church, but may not necessarily have the foundations uh, which are required. Another good idea is to become a priest, if you think about that. <laughs> That's a fantastic uh, you reach idea. Out to, reach out to Father Blake at dioceseoforlando.org. I don't know. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Stjosephlakeland.org now, you know. You I'm, can I'm always start a podcast. At four, at four parishes and uh, in three schools. Oh, wow. So it's a, it's a little Wait, hard what? to get, get a hold of Hold on. There's, par- there's parish groupings in Orlando? Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. My beautiful home diocese is falling. <laughs> just like Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Patrick, so, Patrick, yeah. I hate to tell you this. All of the dioceses are false. No, Orlando <laughs> was the Orlando was my hope. I look back so fondly on the vibrant youth ministries, and I'm like, surely that that, that played out, but no. Well, they did. They did. Empty chairs so- and empty tables. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's actually it's funny because the diocese of Orlando, thank God, is growing exponentially. If for mm-hmm. nothing less, all the people are moving to Florida. The problem is we can't keep up with the growth. That's part of the issue. Oh, we, that's we really, okay. Yeah, we really should be opening two or three churches in our diocese, if I'm being honest. Uh, with, but it's just, we just can't man it. You know, it's, it's just a lot. It's it's a, growing exponentially. So it takes oh, 10 so years it's, to make it's parish priest, groupings you know? because of growth, not, not, not closing churches. Right, right. You know, we're not closing churches. No, no, we're keeping them open. <laughs> that's good. That's yeah, good. Yeah. Okay. That's what's happening up here. It's a little bit of a different, a different problem in our on our end of things, you know, but, um, but yeah, so thank you guys. I mean, those, those are amazing, amazing questions, amazing, amazing topics. And, and, and I really hope that 
this book will be the beginnings of a conversation. You know, that's, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not saying that my book is the answer to all the problems in the post-conciliar world, <laughs> but uh, I do <laughs> no, hope- No, yours it, and Father Harrison's book is the answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You have to read them But both. I do hope that set. it will be the foundations of a new way of speaking about Vatican II. That's my real goal, because right now, unfortunately, the conversation around Vatican II is so hewed by these factions of liberals and conservatives yeah. when they really shouldn't be seen through that lens at all. You know, We need to approach yeah. it with a fresh new perspective, and that's what I'm hoping my book will offer, so as to progress the mission of the Spirit as inspired by the Second Vatican Council. And that book is called Reclaiming Vatican II, what it's really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the church. Reclaiming Vatican II, Father Blake Britton, uh, Word on Fire with Ave Maria Press. Ethan, did I cut you off? No. No, I okay. was going to make a stupid joke, so it's, I'm glad that you said what you are going to say. Good. I've <laughs> saved us. Um, cool. So, Father Blake, uh, something that we, a tradition that we like to uh, to do on 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 The Crunch, we, we, started, we started several segments a year ago, and all of them have fallen apart except for this one segment that everyone loves. It's called Dr. Ethan's Dating Corner. Um, okay. And yeah, and Doctor, I don't know if you know this. Doctor Ethan is a uh, has a has a, a PhD, a doctorate of philosophy in dating. Uh-huh. Um, he's a, he's an expert in dating, and he answers people send in uh, people send in questions about their poor dating lives, and uh, we the 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 married men descend down, condescend to their level and tell yes. them how they should live their lives. And it's always great when we have a priest on yes. because they also get to give a, a pronouncement, a formal pronouncement of of how you should date. So um, yes, would you please. would you mind helping us answer a question? Not at all. Let, let's do Amazing. this. Actually, you know, I, I was famously known by my younger brothers as the love doctor, you know, as I helped them throughout their whole dating uh, time periods in their lives. And, and one of them's married now, so it seemed to work out okay. That's good. <laughs> How many brothers so do you have? My, I'm the oldest of four kids, so that okay, I got, so you know, one, one out of three. We'll see what happens. Hit ratio. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, just, I know it hurts. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right, you came to the right place, you ding-dong. It's called communication, baby. (laughs) So, welcome to Dr. Ethan's Dating Corner, sponsored by Catholic Match. That's a real thing. Uh, Sponsored by Catholic Match. You can go to at Catholic Match on Instagram, or you can can check the link in our description to submit your own question. Uh, Father Blake, this this has to do with canon law, so I'm very excited. Oh my! Uh, for, okay. I know canon law is your area of expertise. That's what I've always <laughs> known about you. Um, this I've been saving this one for a bit. I didn't know how to answer it, so this one comes sure. from someone who wants to remain anonymous. And the short summary is unknown annulment. Oh dear. Uh, I dated a guy during the pandemic, and he was upfront that he had previously been married about ten years ago. Eight months in, I found out he never got an annulment. Is the relationship worth pursuing until he gets that taken care of? Oh, okay. So he was married in the Catholic Church, I presume. Uh, so that would be the first question that we have to answer. You know, was is he a baptized Catholic? And uh, was he married within the conscience of the Catholic Church, which would be a fulfillment of, of the canon? Uh, so he that would mean that he is married still to the previous marriage unless the annulment takes place. Now, he may have gotten married in what we call lack of form. Uh, so if, if he was a Catholic but did not get married in the Catholic Church, that falls under different regulations. Either way, very prudent question on your part. So that'd be the first thing to ask, were you married in the Catholic Church? And if so, yeah, we, we need to postpone our dating until this annulment <laughs> takes place because you're you're still married. Um, so that's that's important. However, however, that being said, if they're going through the annulment process, and this is something that we do, again, on a parish level, 
if someone's actively going through the annulment process and now they're discerning enter into a new relationship, that it is appropriate to date. You know, it's appropriate to start discerning that. Um, and so to answer your, this person's question, the first thing that we need to find out is, was he married in the Catholic Church or not? Because that would change. If he is married in the Catholic Church, we need to find out what stages his annulment is if any, and maybe part, perhaps this might be the person the Lord's calling you to be with, you know, to get married to, um, perhaps part of the way that your marital love is formed is through you helping him heal with the annulment process. I've seen that a couple of times uh, mm-hmm. where you have couples who may not have entered into the healthiest marriage at first, and they grow in love for their future spouse because their spouse is so compassionate and patient with them as they go through their annulment process. So that's one avenue. Uh, the other one would be if he has a lack of form, well, he needs to get that taken care of too. So so yeah. then, uh, so it'd be good maybe to advise him like, hey, maybe reach out to your local parish priest and explain your situation. Uh, again, because there are some more questions I would have to ask him personally. Um, but reach out to your local parish priest, um, ask him, some, you know, let him know your situation and see sort of what needs to be done to resolve it. Um, and in and, and that time, you can maintain communication with him, of course. It's not like you have to, you know, say an anathema, anathema. Yeah, like right? out of here. Yeah, out of Away with you. Away with you, you not an old <laughs> human. <laughs> so uh, you can still maintain contact, but uh, but just make sure some of those basic canonical questions are answered. Either I mean, way. My basic practice is don't talk to people who are married. I just don't do that's it. That's true. <laughs> anyway. So right. if, you're, if, I, if I think you might be married, I'm not talking to you. Sorry. Yeah. Either way. It will behoove you to memorize the phone number to the chancery. Regardless yes. of what happens, you, you should have that those digits locked down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I do. <laughs> well, this is good. Father, thank you so much for coming on our our uh, our humble podcast. Uh, I'm sure you have much bigger stops along the uh, the railway. The press junket. The press, the junket, the, uh, the old tour day. Gauntlet, the gauntlet, and yes, so thank it, you for coming it is on. A gauntlet, but I'm loving it. <laughs> this is good. I I hope you have fruitful conversations everywhere you go. Thank and you. And I'm excited to uh, read your book because I haven't done it yet, but I will. So <laughs> thank you. All right, I'll take you up. You you can't lie to a priest. I I never have world. that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, again, thank you guys. Thank you for all that you do. This has been a blast. It's funny because, uh, you know. When I get on a podcast, the last couple I've done have been super intellectual. So, like, I just did one with uh, with a doctor from Notre Dame University. So nice. I was like, you know, I had to be on point, and we're going through resource monitoring and mental. I'm quoting church documents, and so it's nice every once in a while to get one like this. That's just, you know, what I could just laugh and joke and get it. We've know? had multiple people come on this podcast and say it's nice that you guys aren't as intellectual as other podcasts. <laughs> which I don't know. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. But I'm glad so, that you liked it. <laughs> I'm not saying that you're not intellectual. Okay, I'm just saying you're not smart. No, yes, 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 yes. no, no, <laughs> no. No, oh, no I, I just love, again, it's nice every once in a while to, to just have a laughy, jokey, you know, yes. good, good, still deep conversation. Because I think this, what I like about this podcast is is I really feel, and I've listened to a couple episodes in preparation. I, thi- I know. I think that it. It really does have the um, the ambiance, if you will, of our generation in general, which is uh, which is a generation that we're not superficial by any means. We may act superficially sometimes, but we're actually very deep thinkers, um, and that's all around. But at the same time, there's this lightheartedness that's constantly in us, mm-hmm. and I find that just delightful. 
for millennials and Gen Zers. That's why mm-hmm. I, whenever I get a chance to talk to some of my peers like y'all, it's it's a lot of fun because we can go from something so deep and so serious to making an offhanded comment or joke. And it just, it flows so naturally. So that's more yes. what I meant. I, it was, that's I was good. Definitely no, I, no I, was just, I was just giving you a hard time. <laughs> it, that I mean, is kind I do of have this. what we love about this podcast is that we can, it's yeah. literally, I mean, that's how we brand it. It's the only Catholic podcast that's actually funny. Um, yeah. because <laughs> the only comedy podcast that gets to go to heaven or the only comedy podcast that's going to heaven, which is another way of, well, you're doing it, a great job, a great, great job. I have this, like, I have this like beautiful picture in my head and like, like memory of what it was like to be in high school. And it was exactly that. It was like these conversations at, you know, like I remember like we, in youth ministry, we would like, we would all like gather around then Blake. Sometimes I accidentally say Blake. I know you're a priest now, but <laughs> no we, we'd all we'd all gather around Blake and we'd like hear him talk about the heart of Jesus. And we were all like, tell us more, please. And we'd all like have <laughs> conversations and joke or like, or like we, we were so incredibly blessed to have a lot of like older men, seminarians come and like visit with us and like talk to us about. And like, I think that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to start this podcast and like what it kind of became. I think that informed what we've done because like it is we, I want people to have these kinds of conversations on their yes, own. Yes, absolutely. I want people yeah. to have these conversations in their day-to-day life. And so it's good that this podcast can kind of be a model for that. Yeah. Well, I, 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 um, I'm sorry we didn't get to any of the fun stories like you going to the Pope room or meeting president, then Vice President Joe Biden. I didn't bring that up. <laughs> yes. I think we should leave it as a, as a teaser so that you have to go and listen to Father's other interviews on this book on the other exactly, podcast where exactly. he assuredly Maybe- will tell that story. Maybe so I could just, come back. I could yeah. come back on the crunch and just do You're a comedy, just a full blown, not about the book, but just storytellings, well, you know, <laughs> and little little axioms. Because as as Patrick is well aware, the Lord and like you were saying, Ethan, earlier about yourself and and you you too, Patrick. <laughs> the Lord has blessed me with a lot of comedic experiences <laughs> that could only happen in the Catholic Church. You know, like yes. there are some things. That you just, unless you're Catholic, you're never going to experience in your life. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you know, I got elbowed in the face and got a bloody nose from a nun, you know, trying to get to the front of the line to see the Pope. Mm-hmm. So like, it's like, yeah, that can only happen if you're a Catholic, you know, like, exactly. like getting into elbow fist fights with, with this nun trying to see, get close to the Pope. It's like, okay, sister, you can go. Just don't you're hit allowed. me anymore. I beg of you, please <laughs> make it stop. They come strapped with a rosary and a ruler. That's yes, the they do. And that's the real rule go. of life all right all right then <laughs> they're cool <laughs> yeah. um patrick do you have anything else for the people go buy father blake's book reclaiming vatican II. shameless plug i'll do it he won't <laughs> thank you all for listening please pray for us we'll be praying for you we'll see you all next week